0: Welcome to episode 217 of Control the Controllables. And whether you are new to the podcast or you are someone that has been listening for the last four years, I have to start today. I can't wait to tell you with the exciting news that Control the Controllables is going live. We're going in person. We're doing our first live show. Now, if you have a pen, if not, Remember this date, April nineteenth, 2024, and we're going to be coming to London. But fear not, if you cannot make your way all the way to London, or you are just not in the UK at that time, we are also going to be offering the ability to stream in live with us in our live show. And you ask, what is this live show? What are we going to be doing? Well, we're, we're going to be us. We're going to be Control the Controllables and we're going to bring an amazing panelists to you. And the topic is going to be the big tennis shake-up. Is the new Elite Tennis Tour good for tennis? And we are going to have so many guests that are coming on. We've got a few surprises up our sleeve as well for, for different people to be part of this The next stage, the next chapter of Control the Controllables. And you'll be hearing lots about that in the coming weeks. But get your tickets because there's only going to be 60 to 70 tickets available in person. And then obviously as many as possible online. So look out for that and get your tickets fast. And I hope to meet some of you in person in the very near future. Now, as for our show today, we have. The amazing Olivia Nichols. Now, some of you might remember Alfie Hewitt, who was on the show a few months ago. He went to school with Olivia and he recommended her for the podcast. And she comes on and she tells her story. It's not a typical tennis story. It's something, you know, she didn't have ambition to be a tennis player. But here she is. She's a top 100 WTA doubles player. She's been as high as 59 and I know Olivia's game pretty well. She's going to go higher. You know, this girl can seriously play and she is a fantastic, fantastic personality for British tennis to have. So sit back. You're going to take loads from this story and I'm going to pass you over to Olivia Nichols. So Olivia Nichols, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on.
0: No, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure and you're... Your second appearance, but you uh, you don't have the crew around you this time, so I can I can delve into a little bit more than I was last time.
1: Yeah, you can get stuck in.
0: <laughs> a big well done on on your start and you know winning a winning a tournament with with Beth Beth Gray in in Portugal at the start of the year, and then and then you managed to delve into two fifty, I believe. And I guess my first question, Olivia, is just tournaments how 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 is that for the you know the 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 players that are playing the Australian Open and then it's pretty clear what their tournament scheduling is you know the tournaments are kind of written out for them but as you are grasping for those ranking points to get to that point you know what how how does that look I guess to somebody listening give us give us the realities of how that how that looks and how you're jumping from continent to continent and trying to trying to find the opportunities to play, waiting to see the cuts that are coming out, finding partners at the last minute. Uh, there's a lot more to it than maybe meets the eye.
1: Yeah, I mean, towards the back end of last year, I think I knew that I wasn't going to quite make the cut for Australia, so I made the decision to play late in the year and. Yeah, decided that I was going to do my pre-season in January when everyone else was in Australia. Yeah, so ended up playing, as you say, jumping continent to continent, playing an indoor hard court tournament in Andorra, followed by outdoor hard in Dubai, followed by indoor hard in France to finish the year. So not easy changing, you know conditions and stuff like that but as you say when you're not sure of your tournament schedule and what you're going to be making cuts for etc you kind of just got to take the chances and opportunities when you get them.
0: And how do you deal though in in that situation where we're going right you're obviously spending some decent amount of money to go somewhere like Dubai you know you're there's an investment that's gone into it you're you're thinking right well if I can make final of this event maybe it covers me it certainly gives me the ranking points I need. I guess it could paralyze us, right? If we're starting to, to to overthink the the we we all know that outcome focus doesn't necessarily work in this sport. So how how are you able to to deal with those demons that come along with 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 the, with being desperate, oh, not desperate but being almost having the obsession of trying to get the ranking up and also the financial gain as well.
1: Well, I don't think it, originally I planned to go to Dubai, but the opportunity came for me to play with Heather and obviously like great partner, uh, great person. And yeah, that was just one that I couldn't turn down. So we ended up having a really good week there and we had a lot of fun off the court as well. So yeah, that is probably one huge, hugely important thing is if you can make sure that you're switching off around the actual tennis time, then you're probably more likely to do better in your matches and on court anyway. Yeah, so (laughs) that's what happened at the end of last year. But but if I look
0: at that, though, let's take that example, because I think this is important for people to understand. I want people to understand the realities. Not only is it difficult that you're travelling so much, but how do you have a normal life? Because I guess, how long in advance of Dubai did you make the decision that you're going to Dubai?
1: Um, Actually, that one I had a bit of time because... Yeah, Heather said she was definitely going to finish her year there okay. and she wanted to play doubles and yeah that one was actually locked in pretty early it was the ones around it that I wasn't sure about um but yeah sometimes it can be so last minute um especially with ranking cuts you know you don't know if you're going to be playing a 250 or you might have an ITF as a backup and it could be as late as the Saturday um, two days before the tournament starts. So, yeah, is I mean, it is tough to have, an <laughs> in inverted commas, a normal life because everything is so last minute. But I think as tennis players, that becomes the norm almost. Like, we, yeah. we always find it weird how, you know, my friends in London, their diaries are, you know, chocker for the next four weekends because they've got everything yeah. planned out. We're like, oh, really? Like, everything's so last minute for us. Yeah, they're the strange ones, not us.
0: <laughs> and, and do you book your flights, or do you have a travel agent that helps?
1: Oh no, I do it all myself. Um, I'm pretty savvy with that. I think, like on the whole, like good at finding cheap flights. I haven't got many air miles, I think, because I'm always getting the budget ones. <laughs> so,
0: come on, give us but, the yeah. best. Give us the best bit of advice for for last minute bookings of flights.
1: Well, I mean. If you don't have Skyscanner, are you even a tennis player? <laughs> that would be my Sky. main one. Um, we, Me and Lissy had a really good one last year coming back from Guadalajara. Um, we, we were really struggling to get a flight back and ended up on a £300 TUI flight from Cancun full of holidaymakers, which was... Uh, I was insane. on the same
0: one. I was really? on the same one when I was to Cancun <laughs> for the WTA finals. I was on that blinking flight. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, so, so yeah that was an interesting one but we were happy because uh, yeah last minute and quite cheap so we'll take it
0: well I reckon if if and he's not on this call to defend himself but I'm going to big him up Harry Heliovara who I was working with last year who anyone that knows Harry in the world of tennis he, he wanted to be a pilot he is obsessed with, with planes pilots like uh, he will yeah he, 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 he I'll let Harry defend himself on that, but let's just say he's a big plane lover. And and not only that, he is the master at finding flights. So what he does, right. he actually never actually seems to have a flight going to the final destination that he wants to. So let's say he wants to get back to he wants to get back to Helsinki he he will have a flight that is on its way to Saint Petersburg Russia and then he and that's a cheaper he finds a cheaper way of doing that and then he jumps out at Helsinki so so like he's always he's all, I think Skyscanner isn't isn't up to speed with that actually I think there is a I can maybe yeah. set you up with Maybe Harry I need to, to
1: drop uh, Harry a message
0: because <laughs> I reckon you can save a few more pennies but like I'd like look at my ticket and I'd be like all right Malaga then Latvia and I'll be all right cool but he he said just fine just get off and just get off in Malaga I do it I do it all the time it's 150 euros cheaper so he's uh he's got the got the system absolutely absolutely down so he he's the man to to talk to but Libby I want to I want to jump in because I think you're I don't know your story and I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more I do know you went to school school with Alfie Ewart and obviously Alfie put you forward for this um i i also know that you weren't the 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 journey that we often see you know and people often look at that journey and go oh my goodness you played all of those tournaments and top 10 in the world juniors and then went on to do this and 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 i think that is that's a great story to hear and before i hear your story do you think because of that you then have a bit of a different approach now to your professional career because you're maybe not ground down by the years and years and years of travelling and, you know, trying to desperation for ITF points and Tennis Europe points and the kind of typical journey that juniors have.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't play one junior ITF. Wow. So, um, yeah, and to be honest with you, it's never even in the plan or I didn't have aspirations to be a professional tennis player when I was young. So I think in that respect, my journey was very different. Yeah.
0: But I bet you had a parent who was a tennis coach or you lived near a local tennis club because everybody (laughs) does.
1: Yeah. So I was really fortunate. Um, As you say, I went to the same school as Alfie um, in Akel, which is near Norwich. My mum was the head coach at Acle Tennis Club, which was literally a stone's throw from our house. So, yeah, I would go down there a lot with her, just do baskets, um, playing a lot of outdoor tennis. Um, and, yeah, that was where a lot of the hard yards were done for me. Um, yeah, and I went to school right the way through um, to year 11. I did all my GCSEs. I then went on to Sixth Form College to get my A-levels because um, the big thing for me was getting to Loughborough University. Um, I just had my heart set on going there. So, yeah, my goal was to get the A-levels I needed to get into Loughborough University, which I did, and then that was really the place where my tennis progressed, I would say. So
0: so when you say you didn't have the the aspirations and you didn't play an ITF junior event okay i can i can i can see that but your mum's a head coach at a at a club how much tennis were you playing and and i guess give me a bit more of a feel like in terms of junior wise what you know ranked within the country ranked within the county you know were mm-hmm. you traveling around the country playing tournaments give give me a little bit more feel of that
1: um so I played a fair amount, like, of course I played a fair amount, like all of the my summer holidays um, I would spend playing the grass court tournaments that were sort of like grade threes, local to East Anglia, so Felixstowe, Frinton, Cromer, all of these kind of tournaments. Um, but it was more of a kind of fun, sociable feel. Um, Ranking-wise, I think... I did get to, like, top 20 in under-16s, under-18s. Um, and I would play, like, national events, but I was certainly not playing and putting in the hours that the other girls were putting in. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah, and I didn't play nationals. I played maybe once or twice, but we tended to go on holiday that week because it was the last week of the summer holidays, and we'd we'd go on holiday as a family. So... Um I would play the whole of the summer holidays, but maybe not the level that my coach at the time would have liked because it was maybe the kind of easy option, local option. But you know, I enjoyed it. I was traveling with my best friend um and both our brothers, and that was our summer holidays, and we had a great time. Yeah.
0: So how did you how did you avoid the the spiders web that is the world of tennis or the or, or, or British tennis? That kind of grasps people and and all of a sudden you start comparing yourself and comparing ratings and rankings and possibilities and who's doing this and what who's gonna do that and who's getting this funding. Did did that pass you by or or were you just able to allow it to wash over you?
1: I think I had quite a mature head on me when I was young and yeah, I didn't get bogged down with all that stuff. Um I liked other sports. I did other things. So, like, tennis wasn't everything. Um, education was really important. Worked hard at school. Maybe tennis wasn't everything. And I think my parents probably handled it pretty well as well. Like they They were supportive. But I think they just wanted me to stay in the game as long as possible. You know, there's such a high dropout rate in teenage girls, I think, more than anything they probably just wanted me to keep playing to be active to keep playing the sport and yeah so maybe I just didn't let it get too intense and my parents didn't allow it to get too intense because I think probably around like 15 16 17 I wasn't enjoying it as much because of all of the aggro with you know parents and everything that you know cheating and the environment, you'd, you'll have seen it firsthand, it's not the nicest environment, junior tennis. Um, so I kind of took a back step, maybe didn't compete as much, didn't play as much. But then when I went to university at the age of 18, got really stuck in again and really pushed on from there. So I think I was lucky in some ways with my journey through my teens because I think I could have easily dropped out had it have got too intense.
0: And now you know what you know. You're yeah twenty eight years old I believe now so you've been 29, 29. okay <laughs> so you've been you've been out of juniors for eleven years it's eleven years since mm-hmm. you went to lovepra would you do anything different in your junior days weighing everything up or yeah. or do you believe that you you and your parents got it right
1: I think For me personally, it probably was the right way because I think I could have easily hung up my rackets if not. I think if it had got too intense, too young, I I could have called it a day. I think that being said, you know, you've got girls that have done the journey differently who've probably banked a lot more hours on court. And maybe that's beneficial now. Like, I think I have a generally like a good feel for the ball and stuff like this, but maybe didn't bank those hours that a lot of girls did at a younger age. So maybe that part was missing, but I certainly wouldn't change my journey.
0: And And then one of the things I wanted to jump into, because we've talked a lot on this podcast about US University, you know, and obviously we're seeing now Australian Open uh, try and get the stats exactly right but there was i believe there was 19 male singles players in the in the main draw at the Australian Open there was seven women's singles players which is fantastic because we haven't seen those numbers before there was 44 men's college US college players in the main draw of the doubles at the, at the Australian Open and there were 16 in the main draw of the women's and those figures had even gone up since us open 2023 so that's been like that's a legit pathway you know whichever anybody can argue it uh, now that they can now pay the athletes this nil that they've got in place it is a legit pathway to being a professional tennis player mm. now when we talk about uk uni which we've had you know you and McGinnis come on my last guest was Colin Fleming, who came through the uh, University of Stirling. We, we do have some stories, but there's not as many. It's not kind of that the, the path hasn't been led as, as as greatly. So my question was going to be why UK University over US University? But it seems like that was quite an early decision that you'd made due to the course that you wanted to take at Loughborough.
1: Yeah, I think... Not only the course, but also the fact that I was a bit of a homebird, to be honest, yeah, at that yeah. age. I don't think I ever looked into America because that was just too much of a big move for me at that age. Yeah. Um, I grew up in, you know, a small village, had, you know, family, friends that I was really close to. And I just wasn't ready to make to do that at that age. I, I wanted to have the comfort of knowing that I could be three hours from home if I wanted to go home. Mm. Um, So America was never really on the cards for me. That being said, I do think there's a lot of positives to going to America. Um, it's very different to the, the English system. I think the kind of team aspect and the level of matches that you're getting is, I would probably say, higher in the States, especially in the Division I or the top division. Yeah, for sure, the the level and the amount of matches you're getting is greater. But I think where the british university is good is that and this is where it was big for me was i was exposed to playing itfs yeah um all of the domestic itfs in that first and second year and doing well in like 15s 25s and then that was a real kind of moment for me to realize that actually oh. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm good enough to go pro and give this a crack because I think if I had gone to American Uni, I would have just been surrounded by so many great players that I might not have even considered that I was good enough to go pro. Whereas to actually be winning pro tournaments whilst I was still at uni was like, okay, maybe maybe I should be considering this as a as a career
0: yeah and that's and 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 i I don't know if you remember this, but I certainly remember seeing you play with Beth somewhere and i
1: it was at Bath I remember having the conversation with you on the balcony
0: <laughs> right so there was and, and I remember watching you and now that I know your story, I'm amazed how good you were because because really? you, because <laughs> you massively massively stood out to me, and if that would that would have been at the time where Probably you, you were only a couple of years into university, so you yeah. kind of hadn't done hadn't done the junior. And I was absolutely convinced. And I think I told you this, but I was convinced that you were a top hundred, if not higher, doubles player. Um, which, well done, you've proven me right. You know, because <laughs> yeah, you've thank been you. As high, you've been as high as fifty nine. But I'm also convinced that you're a top fifty, top forty, top thirty doubles player. So oh, you now, na- so so you now need to. Go and prove me right on that as well. (laughs) And when you do, we're we're going to get you get you back on the podcast. But the the thing I just want to say on that, Olivia, is it seems to me like the UK university system because there will be someone listening to this that's you know looking in, and I think people absolutely need to have their eyes open, not just. I'm a big believer of US college, but it's not right for everybody, you know. And yeah. I think and, and I think we've got to be a little bit careful, actually. It's getting a little saturated. So yes. there's there's a lot of players that maybe don't quite have the level that are just going, oh, that's what I have to do because that's what this player did and that's what that player did. But yeah, but it, it might not be for you. But I just, I get the feeling, and I haven't been through it myself, but I get the feeling at UK university for it to work, you have to be quite intrinsically motivated to make it happen because the support systems aren't quite as strong. The budgets aren't as big. The coaching teams aren't as big. You know the practice is a little bit more free to but but if if you have that intrinsic motivation, as we've seen with yourself, Colin Fleming, Johnny O'mara, you know, some players that jump to mind there there is some real opportunities there as well,
1: yeah, I think that's completely fair from what I've seen when you go to American uni, there is a lot of kind of pressures to you know be at this many training sessions and this fitness session at this time is certainly more relaxed um or it was when I was at Loughborough and it's kind of coming off your own back and, and you know the opportunity's there the trainings there if you want it but if you if you can't be bothered to get up you know get out of bed for 7am training you know they they probably don't have the depth of the player to kick you off the team because ultimately yeah. <laughs> They need to put four players out for a box match on a Wednesday so it's certainly does yeah, anyone ever have...
0: train on a Thursday after uh, no no
1: Thursday I... training <laughs> I, I mean
0: yeah. after box after, after... box Wednesday yeah. nights it, it, Thursday doesn't happen huh
1: <laughs> I mean yeah I can come on here and say how intrinsically motivated I am and all of this but I certainly wasn't training on a Thursday morning when I was at university <laughs> that's for sure.
0: That's just that's that's just a no go. So that brings me into the next bit because as you then and you're winning those events in in university, which gives you that feeling, which which we all need, you know, that feeling of belief, that feeling of of confidence that we can that we can do something. I've got a theory that when people and I'll I'll share a little story. I remember walking into Wimbledon with Liam Brody and Lloyd Glasspool. And Liam had obviously been two, three. I don't think he ever made one. And I'm doing you a disservice, maybe Broads, if you were, but he was right at the top of the junior game. Lloyd never really played many ITFs. I think he was like one thousand. And and as we walked in, I think it was Kirios was shouting out Broads, how you doing? You probably effing this and effing that. And then Dom Dominic team was like, and I think he just made final of french open and he was like hey broads you know how, how's things and I, and I remember seeing lloyd kind of just walking in and and lloyd was definitely experiencing a bit of imposter syndrome you know walking into that into those events and i guess my that's my theory that that sense of belonging is a massive part of tennis you know when we might have all the same skill sets, we might have everything, but if we don't feel like we belong or we have a bit of imposter syndrome, it's hard to bring out performances that we're capable of. So you, when I take your story, I guess you're a prime candidate for someone who would experience that, you know, because you didn't have a necessarily a name name. In, in the country, never mind in the, wo- in the world of tennis. So all of these new experiences and then playing your first WTA events and then playing your first Grand Slams, have you experienced imposter syndrome? <laughs> and and yeah. how have you been able to overcome that to start feeling like you do belong at those levels?
1: Without a doubt. I remember my first WTA was in Lyon in 2022, I think. And we actually out of nowhere, made final. So um, it was a crazy week. And I remember the the supervisor coming up to us and being like, look, I'm really sorry, but because of the way the schedule's gone, you're going to have to wait two days to play the final. And I just had a massive grin on my face because I was, I was just so happy to be at this WTA. I was like, right. this is literally incredible. I was like, I get two more days of experiencing this, amazing event I was beaming and I was like don't worry not a problem um but yeah I mean the final big stage and we played Siegmund's Von I mean for me like I'm pretty sure I'd watched Von in the Wimbledon final however many years ago yeah. so without a doubt experienced it there um but I guess the more you're exposed to playing WTAs playing the slams I think that's definitely a thing of the past now
0: yeah, and, and I don't have it at all. Good, and 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 that and that's great, and that, but that also shows the importance of of giving it a go over a period of time as well. You know, like you've got the experience under your belt now, and and I think so many players i, I Again, I hate it when players say, "I'm just going to give it a year. I'm just going to give it a year yeah. and see, and, and what can really happen in a year." You know, we're 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 kind of throwing a hail mary, a little bit. So the the fact that you you've you've put your time in, but but tell me or tell tell the tell the listener, you've been as high as fifty nine. You've dropped slightly outside of hundred now, but you're in that kind of that space. What is the difference between that and and the next level that you want to be at? You know, playing regular slams, being seeded in slams. What's the difference from a from a tennis perspective, if you don't mind sharing, if you have, have something on that? But then yeah. sec- but then secondly, the the ranking system of, mm-hmm. of the WTA, which is what we're talking about. What are the challenges of that system in order to accrue the right amount of points to move from what seems close, right? 60 seems pretty close, but actually we know 60 to 30 where you're starting to get into all of the events is actually a lot further away than a lot of people realise as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the first bit. I think, like, level-wise, I've actually got a really good example of that because I've literally just come off the back of playing a 75 followed by a 500. Yeah. And... We talk a lot about you know the value of matches, which I completely agree with. I got four you know four matches in Portugal, which was brilliant, and came away with a title. But then to go from that to a 500 to play an established top 50 team, you know it was like we were suffocated from point one. You know there's no let up. We were being hit from point one. You're getting punished for lack of serve accuracy, predictability. There's so much doubt created from the other side of the net with their movement, their plays, the amount of space they're allowing you to hit into. There's no question that it's very noticeable when you go from just outside top 100 level to a team that is in the top 50. And then in terms of the sort of point structure and opportunity and making that breakthrough, I don't know how much you've seen about how they've changed the point structure even more this year, but it's certainly kind of top heavy and well for a start there's not that many opportunities at a lower level or sort of at the level that I'm at right now it's it's almost like you're either playing a 75k or you're playing Abu Dhabi, Doha, Dubai or whatever the 500,000s are that are coming up and to win
0: win a match in a WTA 500 event how many points do you get?
1: think it's over a hundred now. I think it's just over a hundred. So let's um, say a
0: hundred and five to yeah. So so to win to win the tournament at the seventy five k, how many points do you get?
1: Seventy five now. They've matched it. So yeah, <laughs> not easy.
0: And so and what what is this, so what does that reality look like for you at, at, at your ranking?
1: Um, well, I don't think I moved after winning. So I'm I'm currently 105 or something like that, just outside 100. And realistically, I mean, I don't like to sort of put pressure on or look at points and all of this, but I think, you know, I, I know that you need a good run, at least in a 250 or win a round or two at a 500 to be making some decent progress.
0: And, and, and the 500s, what percentage of 500s at your ranking would you get in if you're playing with somebody similar ranking?
1: Not many. I think last year, obviously, I was ranked a lot higher. I was about 65 or 70. I only got into one. So, yeah, I was kind of lucky to get in this week. But then for the rest of the year, I, I, won't, I probably won't get into a 500 unless I have a good run and make one at the end of the year. But the opportunities are sparse because you need to be top fifty-five I'd say to get in. So one one ten combined probably.
0: So how do you so because also the money isn't great at those levels. We 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 know that. We know that people say in singles at those levels, but doubles is probably a tenth of that. So how does someone like you keep going?
1: Um I mean I was lucky twenty two and yeah twenty three I I played all of the slams, played Billie Jean King Cup, which was a decent paycheck, especially when we made semifinals. And yeah, had a run in the mix at Wimbledon. So yeah, I mean, I, I've actually done pretty well, to be honest, I'd say in the last couple of years financially, but maybe at the slightly lower ranking of like 130 or yeah, you're struggling a little bit more for sure. But that's
0: also you being British, though, isn't it? That's you being a, in a Grand Slam nation, you know, so you, yeah, get, you, you, you get those opportunities. Obviously, Billie Jean King Cup, you've earned. But again, that's not always going to happen in every single country. And maybe not all mm-hmm. countries are paying that as well, which then brings me on to the next bit, which is we we talk about the importance of support team. You know, and like we we're giving that advice all the time, right? Uh, you know, we've been r- running a female empowerment campaign, and we've been speaking to lots of lots of different women out there, lots of different tennis players, coaches, and and that's one of the biggest bits of advice that's given is get the right team around you. And I find myself giving that advice as well. Just make, make sure you got. Good people around you, people that care, people that know what they're talking about, but that also costs money to have the right people around you. You know, so so it's it's not quite as simple, and I think that's a reality that not everybody quite understands. So how how have you been able to manage that? Are you are you someone that's been fortunate in some ways and you've been able to get that team around you or is that something that you don't always have and something that you crave or is that something that you think well screw that I'm I'm on my own and I can I can I can push through and I can I can make this work
1: no I think I've been very lucky with the team that I've had around me Um I've worked with Tom Kiesel who was the coach at Loughborough ever since I was there and I'm still working with him now and, yeah, I have to say that he goes above and beyond to support me and does countless hours of work that I don't pay him for, basically. Any opportunity for him to be able to watch my matches and give me feedback, he will do. Um, yeah, it's a shame he can't travel with me a little bit more because he still heads up the programme at Loughborough. But, yeah, I'm just extremely lucky to have him as coach. Um still going up there kind of for a few days every month i'd say and he he still does a lot of work with me remotely so yeah and all of the grass court season he will do with me as well so very lucky to have him and then working at ntc with craig veal as well who's obviously very experienced and is a very good coach he worked with alexa gracci um and he's currently working with Jody Burridge and Lily Miyazaki as well. So he's a very good coach and good person to have on board. So I've, I'm very lucky with my coaching team. And then Laura Dagman, who's a good friend of mine, does my fitness as well. So I'm yeah, I'm more than happy and very fortunate to have such great coaches, but also great people around me.
0: People can't see me, but that's me tipping my hat to to Tom because I think that's, again, it's a conversation I've had with lots of people on this podcast. It is a challenge. It's a massive challenge, but I also think people cry the finance challenge too much at times, you know, Mm -hmm. because I do think if you are a good person like yourself who is showing... Showing not not just the potential, but showing that you've got the skills performer wise, you've got the determination to have success, then then there is a lot of good people out there that will take chances on on players. And I know that's that's a little bit too idyllic in in concept, you know, and it's not always yeah. it's not always the case. But people like Tom that are giving their time up and given the extra and spending the time, it it goes so far. I was once upon a time, a player, you know, and I've still fortunately got my coach, John Willis, who I still look at him, look at him as my coach and the, the countless hours and time and care and, you know, all of those things go such a such a long way. So we have to. I'm pleased that Tom's got a shout out, and we, we absolutely <laughs> yeah. give him give him a big shout out as well. And I also think at this point as well, we need to shout out British tennis as well, and the LTA who come in for a hard time as well. You know, but providing that that service, and again, Craig Veal's been on the on the pod before. Craig's a great great guy, great great coach as well. But that that resource that's being provided by the tennis federations is massive and it's and it's something that not so many nations have have the fortune of having as well
1: yeah i mean i was speaking to um ellie lechemier who i played with last week who's a french player and just kind of discussing the federations and where they're all training and stuff like that and people are quite quick to say bad things about The LTA, I think. But actually, if you compare it to other nations, you know, we're all there. We're all putting hours in. We're all training together. There's a great vibe now at NTC with all the players. You know, we get good support. I think the tournament bonus scheme is a fantastic initiative that other nations don't do. So, for example,
0: tell us more about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of the singles bonuses, but for winning the ITF last week for the 75 you We got a bonus of five hundred pounds, yeah, great, which you know when you add it up or add it on to the prize money that you're getting kind of makes it you know you've you've earned you've had a decent week's work, shall we say yeah, um, and yeah I think I think it's a good way of doing it because you're getting rewarded, you know you're not just being handed the money on the plate, okay, maybe there's other parts of you know how they run, where they do give sums of money, whatnot, but I think the the bonus scheme is a great scheme because you know you've got to go out there and earn it and you're getting rewarded for for winning which is what it's all about at the end of the day. So yeah, we're lucky to have that.
0: And, and also I think the the respect the respect level of doubles in our industry is is appalling. It's like whatever. The second yeah. class third class citizens I I, I want to actually get into that in a little bit about on the, on the bigger scale. Uh, there just isn't the respect level. So the fact that a bonus system like that also takes doubles players into consideration, I think also the LTA deserve a lot of credit because I think a lot of nations might have a system like that. I know the Australian... Yes. System is currently looking at the British system on that, and I'm a big yep. believer. I like incentives and, I, and the, the way that it works. We're we're competitive beings, right? And I think you know certainly after a certain age, putting those things out there is is a great way to, to distribute funds. Um, but the other thing they have we've talked about Craig Veal. I want to then jump into Louis Caille because Louis is a genius. He's got a CV that's just off the charts. You know, I wouldn't even dare imagine talk about how many Grand Slam winners he's been a part of, a world number ones, and all of these things. But Louis tend to have spent most of his time with male doubles players, and that's I'm of the Louis Caille book of doubles. You know, I've he's been a mentor to me. He's you know that's the the system I've learnt. Uh, but then I've been working heavily in women's doubles on the WTA now for the last six or seven months, and it's been really interesting for me to see how many of the concepts the ways transfer, you know, and obviously it depends a little bit on on game style game identity. But for you as a player and also a forward thinking doubles player, someone who's very good at the net how much of Louis' system do you think is applicable in in the women's game at the, at the top end?
1: It's a great question. I think, well, I'll start with myself. And when I was playing with Lissy a lot, there's no question that we were using it. Um, yep. You know, I haven't worked with Louis directly, but Tom did his level five with Louis. So he learned a lot of it through him. We were playing a lot of I-formation Um you serve here and I volley here and we know exactly what we're doing every single time. And if we do it well, it doesn't come back.
0: Yep.
1: But in terms of how much it's being used at the top of the game, the women's is slightly different because you do have some set pairs, but there's probably less, would you say, than the men's? Um, you know, some of the girls, like a lot of the girls, they don't have a set partner. So they're mixing around a lot. So I think it's not, used as much for those teams when they're playing with different partners each week but for the teams that are, yeah established i think it's yeah it is used a lot but there would also be teams that are effective without using it um there's there's different ways of playing isn't there
0: well there is and and and, and i think i think what i've seen actually i would i would say if you're a club player watching doubles i actually think women's doubles is a lot more exciting and and I and I also think it's more relevant to what you're what you're learning and and because I think the 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 system Louis system that's absolutely fantastic, which is all built up upon providing stress to your opponents, you know, through <laughs> through the way that you're moving, through the positions that you're taking, through the players that you're calling, um, through forcing them to play shots they don't want to play, and ultimately ultimately tennis as a muscle relaxing sport. What I've seen is the ball gets into play a lot more in women's doubles. The serve is less dominant and yep. the return is more dominant. So so if you're serving at 125 miles an hour and you're hitting your spot with quite vigorous spin into the corner of the box, if the return comes back, it's pretty much going to come back in the middle of the court and the and the, and the player's just going to knock the volley off. And and it actually is quite boring to watch actually if we're being brutally honest you know yeah. and i've i've worked in the in the men's doubles game as well there's obviously a lot of exciting matches as well but when it's executed well it can be quite boring to watch what i'm seeing is there's a lot more balls come back in play and you can't predict the returns as much because the serve's not as dominant so so it's if you miss your spot on the serve or the serve isn't quite hard enough I'll give an example: a body serve, and I'm getting a bit technical here. But if we talk about a body serve at 120 miles an hour on the ad side into someone's jam them up on the backhand, it's almost impossible that that player's going to go down the line off that return. If you hit a serve at 95 miles an hour into the backhand, well, actually they can step away from it, and and either play a line cross lob. And 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 it and it becomes a little bit more challenging. So then you have a lot of players. Obviously, the lob's a lot more prevalent. You know, you mentioned Zvonoraver and Siegmund. You must you had a sore neck after playing those guys because you know it's kind of non nonstop lobbing, but it's it, it I found it fascinating and a lot more cat and mouse actually. And then, I, yes. then I then I then I'd realised, um, and it's maybe a one actually I, I need to sit down with Louis and discuss. But I guess I just wondered how much of what you guys have learned is that is that system, and and maybe some of the things that you've needed to adapt to suit maybe the 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 pace of the game, the the fact that the serves aren't quite as dominant, and the fact that the returns are a little bit more dominant. I think that would be interesting to understand.
1: Yeah, definitely using Louis' system. Um, I think my biggest strength is probably as service partner and from eye formation. Like I feel like if my partner hits their serve spot that and I touch that ball three, like I'd like to think that probably nine times out of ten, the point's done. Yep. Um, but then currently I haven't got a set partner, so I'm having to be a little bit more kind of adaptive and playing off instincts a little bit more, maybe using eye formation less. Um and and the plays aren't as regimented. You know, you have to play off instincts a little bit more, sense and stuff like that. So yeah, I think naturally or I kind of got to where I got to, um, I was obviously part partnering Lissy all of well, for two or three years and we were quite regimented with our plays and patterns, and that was very effective. but now now I'm mixing partners, maybe maybe the partners I'm playing with don't even know anything, don't have the knowledge that we have, no, so you want... do have to be yeah, do have to be more adaptive um and yeah play off instincts a little bit more.
0: How does that process work? You're going you're rocking up to a tournament you're you're playing with someone. At what point are you deciding who's playing on which side? <laughs> who's serving first? What, How are you going to play? Are you serving volleying? Are you not serving volleying? Are you using the chip lob? Are you hitting and coming in? What energy do you use? Hand signals or not? You know, at what point are those discussions and, and things being sorted?
1: Um, am still learning right now, to be <laughs> honest. I think generally people know if the girls are a juice or ad court player. To be honest, um, that does seem to be so. I don't actually know about the men's, but that seems to be quite set in. You know, oh, you, you wouldn't play with them because they're an adequate player or da da da. da. So that's already depends how big their,
0: it depends how big their ego is. Because if you speak <laughs> yeah, to a if you speak to a male who tend to have big egos, and you say, "What side do you play?" Well, I can play either side. You now a return to return. I've I've heard a lot of that in the men's <laughs> game as well.
1: Well, there you go. It doesn't <laughs> surprise me. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But yeah, I mean, it's actually funny you should bring that up because I said to Craig on court today that I felt my second serve accuracy dropped a little bit because the week with Beth, we were calling first and second serve before we we went up to play. In the past, they've been used to calling second serve after the first serves missed. Yep. And then last week, it was a bit like... <laughs> Sometimes we were calling both. Sometimes nothing was being called. And then as a result, my serve accuracy maybe dropped off a little bit. So, yeah, it, it, you do need to have these conversations. And and maybe I need to write like a tick, like a list of things that I need to tick off that we've discussed so we know exactly what the plan is. Um,
0: I think the way is, is you have your non-negotiable checklist before you decide to play with them. <laughs> you know, and they have to... Yes. They, they have to sign the agreement, you know. Yeah. If you're going to play with me, you must hit the T-serve on the ad unbelievably <laughs> well at at least 180 kilometres an hour so that I can come up in I-formation and knock the volley off. Otherwise, do not sign here, you know, because that's, <laughs> that's the number one secret. Number one secret of doubles, pick the right partner.
1: Yeah, this is true. This is
0: true. well, while, while we're bashing men, well, I am, you're not. <laughs> and male egos again one of the things that has disgusted me and this is no this is none of the players fault but one of the things that's disgusted me since i've been working more on the wta side is how poor the tournament structure schedule is compared to compared to the men's side you know and obviously we talk a lot there is comparisons there's a quality Pay, you know, all of these very important subjects that that I that I think we're getting more and more right in tennis, you know, and that's and I'm proud of tennis for that. Probably a bit of an unseen one is the importance of the number of events, you know, because if you have very few events and you've talked about having quite a big gap between, you know, you have your 75 ks, you win you win the tournament, you get 75 points, and then the next tournaments are 500 ks where You've actually got a you know you've got the five hundreds where you actually have to to win one match you get hundred and five points as an example, and there's a quite a big discrepancy there, so what ends up happening is it's just kind of common knowledge I guess and rationale is that there's that those events those lower level events become a higher level because no one's got anything to play whereas when you have multiple events during the week, then you have more opportunities. You also don't often have to travel as much. You can do your scheduling a little bit more localised, play three, four events in the similar sort of place rather than going from America to Japan to Dubai to wh- wherever it might be. Um, What are we going to do about that? What can be do, done about that? And, and what's the reality of how, I guess, you guys, the players, feel about that as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, the schedule, particularly at the start of the year, sort of, I'd say, especially in like February March, can be very challenging because if you're not top fifty, top fifty five, and making the cut for Dubai, Doha, Indian Wells, Miami, then the actual options you have available are very limited. Um, I think I could maybe play one two fifty in America in that time, and if I'm not gonna make the trip for that one two fifty, then I'll be playing seventy fives again, which you know, it's it's fine, but it does mean that I I probably can't make the progress that I want to um in a short space of time because realistically, even if I'm winning them every week, I'm not gonna move that much. But in terms of actually what there is to do about it, I don't I don't have an answer for that. Um, there was a lot of talk about how they were gonna be putting on this schedule of 125s this year to kind of bridge the gap, as you like. Yeah. Um but they're not actually on the schedule until April time, really. I think there's one in Mexico coming up, which I potentially was going to go to, but then i I saw it was an eight draw so you know that that's a that's an advanced list of four you know and you you're not taking a chance on going to Mexico for a one twenty five it's just it's not even even for financially the t- viable
0: even for the t u i flight on the way back <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean maybe I can get some kind of loyalty with uh, with <laughs> with TUI. <laughs> but um yeah, so it is it is difficult but I think yeah, the opportunities do open up as the year goes on. Um and that's where it's important not to kind of push too hard too soon and burn yourself out because I think it's so easy for everyone to kind of finish their year, oh, I'm done, I'm exhausted mid November when actually there's still quite a lot of good opportunities to be had, late November and December. So yeah, it's, it's frustrating that there's not more going on now. But yeah, it is what it is. And you just got to be patient and wait for the opportunities to come when they do.
0: Yeah. We're all all human beings, right? I do playing for twelve months or so peaking for twelve months every year is not not reality. You know, yeah. so you know, you have a good three, four, five months you know that's that's normally enough to just to, to continue progressing your ranking and I think having that longer term vision and yes and, and development and being able to 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 see that I think it's that mature that mature head of yours again Olivia that you had when you were yes. younger c- coming <laughs> out and um, I want to go a little bit lighter Olivia and we're, we're, we're getting into the, the closing stages but going a little bit lighter and, and about your career and you know uh, just a couple of little questions around that. And I guess the first question is your best. Share with us your best career moment to date.
1: Can I can I limit it to three? Because there's three that stand out.
0: Absolutely. I
1: have to say. And two of them came in 2022 and one of them came last year. So, yeah, Leon Leon was uh, mine and Lissy's first WTA. We ended up making final there. And yeah that was just an incredible week because it was yeah it was a huge breakthrough week I'd never played WTA before we we went there with the intent you, you know we were going to sign in see if we got in and if we didn't play there we had a backup of going to play a 25k in France so you can imagine okay. you know the excitement of just getting in no expectations and yeah, to just, you know, go on to make final. Um, I think in the semis as well, we were six love, four love, sudden death juice down and came back to win. Wow. So yeah, just like kind of playing with so much freedom. Um, yeah, and to make final there, that was, you know, that was where it all started to be honest. So that was a that was a huge highlight. And then playing Wimbledon for the first time in twenty twenty two. Again, like, we just both walked out onto court, beaming, just enjoying every minute. And we won our first match there. And I think we reacted like we'd won Wimbledon, to be honest. <laughs> but it felt like that at the time. Um, yeah, so that was a huge moment. I mean, And why not? Yeah, why not? You know, we had both of us, me and Lissy, had all of our friends, family. I mean, I I pretty much had the whole of Akel on the side of the court. She had the whole of Painswick there. So it was a really incredible moment. Um, and yeah, it was really good, good memories there. And then the end of that year, we both got selected to play at the BJK Finals in Glasgow and had this dream run um the team went 2-0 down against Kazakhstan and we we won the doubles rubber to make it 2-1 and keep us in the group and then the team needed to beat Spain 3-0 to qualify uh, to move through to the semi-finals and we did that and we won that deciding doubles rubber and yeah it was just incredible like the atmosphere the home crowd friends and family there you know, representing your country, you just, it's stuff that you, if you'd have told me when I was a kid, like you just wouldn't believe it. So to have played for my country and had that experience and to get through to the semifinals for the first time in however many years, it was, was incredible. Yeah, t- incredible.
0: Because t- I, I watched that and, and you girls were amazing and like <laughs> there was such a, um, Almost uh, like a connection, like to almost like childish joy that 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 I think that I think sometimes tennis takes us away from and can and you know I I had this a conversation with my wife actually in Australia that when when the girls Gabby and Aaron won their third round I mean they've just won the third round Australian Open and the feeling I had was relief and they just moved to the quarterfinals. And I hated it, and I was very aware of the feeling that I had. And I walked into the into the gym to see them, and and one of them said "phew," and the other one went "oopsie," because they- I can uh,
1: tell who said what <laughs> because they,
0: because they went to sit down, and
1: yeah,
0: actually, it's the other way around. Oh, and really? <laughs> yes, and yeah. and 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 it was this like moment of like. Oh my god, don't tell me we've lost this joy. This because the US Open was that run for for them yes. and for me to be a pleasure to be a part of because it wasn't it was so unexpected. And and I think the 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 expectation and the weight of expectation is it's so horrible. And I don't quite know how to stop it, even though we try to. And you know that was talked about a lot, like Australian Open and the girls who just made the semi-finals, and it's like, oh my god, I've come back not feeling like they made semi-finals. I've come back going, oh my god, what they should have done that, and that I've only done. It's it's this sport is the devil when it comes to that. So so back to you guys in Glasgow because that feeling was such a. I think it's so infectious when you watch it, you know, and it was such an infectious feeling watching it. It it just beamed out at the screen. So so describe that moment when you've won. The final yeah. point you've won to to beat Spain to qualify for the Billie Jean King Cup semi-finals out of nowhere. You know yourself okay. and Lizzie, who they've you've not been. You know that hasn't been your journey for the couple of years before. How how did that feel?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it felt amazing. I think, I remember there being a lot of um, articles afterwards about what you've just described, kind of this infectious feeling of how much we were enjoying ourselves. But yeah, I think a lot of that, you know, it did come down to the fact of like what good friends we were, what good friends we are. Um, We spent a lot of time together. We're on this journey together. And then it was like the icing on the cake to be playing for Great Britain. And then... Yeah, none of that was, it was just happening. None of that was anything we were thinking about. It was like, you know, the the team vibe had been amazing. Everyone's getting on really well. Um, That was kind of where I first got to know Heather. And we just hit it off, like just connected. So I remember, like, I think it was like we won the set or something, like a serve and volleyed, but I knew the return was going out. I've like sprinted to the to the changeover to the seats, like high five the team and was just loving it. And I know what you mean about kind of what you're saying about the girls. And, you know, sometimes you, you do feel like on the tour, you can't quite express yourself in the same way. And yep. I've spoken a little bit with my team about this because I feel like in that environment in that team environment, you're playing with your friend, you're on a team with all your pals, you can kind of like, express yourself a little bit more and trying to just allow myself to do that when I'm on the tour as well because I think it can get a little bit you know or you're worried about what people think or if you're being arrogant or if you're doing this and they are doing that rather than just being yourself and enjoying it a bit more um but yeah going back to that you know the Billy Jean King Cup I think yeah just all of those things of the team aspect, everyone getting on really well, wanting to do it for each other, um, enjoying being out there, enjoying the moment. You know, it just kind of all happened quite quickly and just fell into place really.
0: What's your biggest regret, tennis?
1: I I don't have one currently
0: I said I said I was gonna go lighter. We went lighter, but there was so many <laughs> there were so many lighter, nice stories and I had such a smile on my face with those stories. I thought I'd Bring you back in to so so that's a good so that's a good answer. And <laughs> I haven't the,
1: I haven't told you my last last. Oh, one you've of got, no, yet, you you've got another
0: one. What you told me three? More. You got one more. This is and I know sorry. this this must be. Yeah, exactly. Wimbledon. Okay, <laughs> we've got to hear about that.
1: I, I have to I have to mention it because that that whole kind of experience with Johnny was the most <laughs> joyous, funny um unexpected couple of weeks yeah that you could imagine just because of the circumstances um I actually never planned to play with him originally I don't know if you know this or not but I was going to play with Henry Patton and then he obviously got the injury so he couldn't play grass court season Johnny hadn't really been playing that much had he he only rocked up for the grass court season and I didn't know if we'd get in because of that but um but yeah, we did get in. He was obviously working with Andy as well, and yeah, we uh we just went on this this dream run basically, which was which was incredible. And
0: Johnny, he's like, I mean, he's got a serious gift that boy, you know, for for playing for playing tennis. But I think he's also got a serious gift for for playing a crowd. And for yeah. that that environment, like uh, he's he almost seems to me like he's the perfect mixed doubles partner.
1: Yeah, this is what Tom, my coach, was saying. He was like he kept saying to Johnny, "You're a top ten in the world mixed doubles partner." Yeah. <laughs> Just because, as you say, he plays the crowd. He can come up with these incredible shots that, you know, get the crowd going. And I think what he does best that maybe a lot of guys don't do. In mixed doubles is makes his partner feel so at ease. Yeah. You know, he makes you feel so comfortable on the court, so relaxed. She probably would not mind me saying, but Layla Fernandez played with Wes Kulhoff yeah. and we played against them. And I don't think she was at her best because of how nervous she was playing with him. Yeah. Um, and I obviously didn't feel that with Johnny because he made me feel so at ease. You know, he's having a laugh before we went on for our first round match, he was still in the box watching Andy Murray play past 10 minutes before. So, <laughs> you know, everything was very relaxed and very laid back. And yeah, it, it kind of took the pressure off, I guess.
0: And There's a couple of things I want to ask you about that. One, did Andy come and watch you guys?
1: <laughs> no, he didn't, but Judy did.
0: <laughs> okay, well, that's that's a good substitute. and And, t- and two... Because we hear it all the time, and, and there's a sweet spot, right? There's a sweet spot to uh, – when people retire, I definitely uh, – my, my best tennis was played in U.S. college, but then my second best tennis was played the 6-12 months after I stopped playing. You know, I actually beat a Wimbledon champion, like someone who just – Stephen Huss, who had just won Wimbledon the year before, like six months after – beat him in doubles playing with someone else who was 30 in the world. And I didn't have those wins when I was playing, you know, so I I think there's a sweet spot of, uh, of giving a shit, but not giving a shit, (laughs) you know? So, you know, you've got to have that, give a shit, have the right discipline, take care of your body, take care of your mind, but you get your reps in, but then, find that sweet spot of performing like you don't give a shit. You know, it's, and it's it's a really fine balance because, you know, and and, and uh, the example I use is like a Kyrgios. His island on that's quite small, but or Benoit pair, you know, but on his day, they're dynamite. On their day, yeah. they're absolute dynamite. But then the, the most tennis players give a shit, but they also give a shit. And that's then the ones that get very tense, and it's hard, and it's hard to perform, and it's hard to just let it happen and let it all come out. And then you've got the—I'm still going to say it—the greatest of all time on the on the men's side, Roger Federer, who took care of everything. But he he played with his elegance and this grace that he kind of—and he often said it—you know—he had a tolerance for failure. You know, yeah. of, okay, if I if I lose this match, I still go out to dinner with my family. So I can tolerate failing, which is quite powerful. How how do you get that balance? Because Johnny Omara in that week, like you say, top 10 mixed doubles, but maybe even a top 10. I mean, he was hitting like returns like in moments like, whoa, where's that? What is going on here? But it's it's not easy to maintain that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, starting off, we played, so I was playing Juice Court in the first round for a set. And he was playing ad court and I normally play on the ads, but I just said to him, look, you know, you're you're the strength in this team. You play where you want to play. So we, so I started off playing on a side that I'm not used to and we lost the first set 6-1. And I think in normal circumstances, I'd have probably just stuck with it because, you know, there's a long way to go, whatever. But he was like, ah, let's just have a bit of banter here. Why don't we swap sides? <laughs> and I think everything kind of stemmed from, you know, him making these kind of calls and keeping it so light. So we swapped sides. We snuck the second set on a tie break and then we won the third. And, you know, that just kind of epitomized what he was like. And I probably wouldn't have done that. Um, And the whole week he was checking out, or the whole fortnight, he was checking out of his hotel every day because he was like it's a win-win because if we win we're in the next round and if we lose I get to go home and see my dogs <laughs> so he just constantly spoke about win-win situations and I think you know by modeling it like that in his brain it actually worked really well and it it's you know he was able to find that sweet spot like you've just spoken about so I've tried you know I've tried to be a bit more Johnny in the last six months or since that run and yeah, Dubai being an example, you know, if we lose first round, well, I'm in Dubai and I'm going to make a bit of a holiday of it or, you know, this type of thing in Porto, 75, oh, I'm just here for matches if I lose, well, it's only an hour, hour flight home and, you know, and then you go on and yeah. you end up having a good week. So it's it's constantly trying to create these situations in your in your mind where if it doesn't go so well, then it doesn't matter because, you know, there's a silver lining. I like it so, a lot. So, good learning from me for Johnny.
0: Uh, from yeah. Johnny, <laughs> I am. Um, I love Johnny, but when he played, played, he wasn't like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but that's what great learning. And he's, you know, let's. He's obviously in in Andy Murray's corner now as well. And you know, that's. I'm sure that's one of the big reasons Andy loves having him around as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he is a great guy to. To, to have in your corner. So um, I'm pleased you jumped in and added I thought that was a fourth story. I thought you said three there was sorry
1: you, I could only sne- limit it to four.
0: You sne- <laughs> you sneaked a fourth. But all well worth listening to. Now this next bit I'm gonna say a name or I'm gonna say a statement okay. and you're gonna and then you're gonna you're gonna talk.
1: Okay. I'm ready.
0: Uh, Arena Savalenka.
1: Powerhouse champion
0: Alfie Hewitt.
1: Norfolk legend.
0: So what you're doing, I like what you've done here. You've changed <laughs> you've changed the game, which is <laughs> which is great. But <laughs> I'm obviously not explaining this well enough. <laughs> you you, you want a bit have, more. Yeah, like uh, you don't okay. have to. Like you, you, you look. You look like you're playing some game on Christmas Day, where you're, <laughs> where you're like afraid that someone's gonna press press a hooter or something if you say the wrong <laughs> word. So I'm gonna take it for Arena, but when you went to school with Alfie, I'm not just having Nordic want... Legends. I need more. <laughs> you want than, a bit I need, more? I need more than okay. that. Come on, Alfie, you okay. give me more.
1: Okay, tell me a bit about Alfie. Um. Alfie's a great guy. I've known him since we were really young. Um, he's a couple of years younger than me, but we went to the same secondary school, Akil high school, give them a little shout out. Um, but yeah, he's a really good guy. Um, he's been through a lot in his life and he's worked extremely hard to get to where he's got to. I really admire him as a, as a person and as a tennis player. He's a, yeah, he's achieved a huge amount and, um, yeah, enjoy spending time with him off the court as well. We're both big Norwich City fans, so we've been to a few games together. Yeah, he's he's a top top guy and I I hope the best hope for the best for him and um yeah, I know how much it it means to him to to win a Wimbledon title, so I hope he's able to achieve that.
0: I'm still I'm still smiling because I can't believe how that game started. <laughs> <laughs> i can't I can't get it out of my head the the way that you were so thinking about the one one or two words to say and um, but what, <laughs> what what was coming into my head as you were speaking about Alfie was how cool would this be uh not only mixed doubles but a mixed ability doubles as well you know get the we have the...
1: Do you know what we've we've spoken about it because obviously his partner is Gordon and Maya Lumsden is a yeah. female doubles player yes. and they're, they're both Scottish. We're both from Norwich. So we're trying to, yeah, we've thrown the idea out there to to get some kind of mixed doubles event going, you know?
0: I would absolutely because like that again, like I, I like watching wheelchair tennis, but if I'm on a singles, yes. singles doesn't get me really. But the yeah. doubles, oh my goodness, the doubles is like, I don't know if you saw it the other day, there was a two-minute rally. In one no of way. The, in in one of the matches in uh, at Australian Open, the wrap yeah. was two minutes. I mean, and it was just like shot to shot to shot, and then you get you know someone plays the drop shot, and they, it's I I think it's fascinating, but I think that that would be a mixed doubles mixed ability. I think I think there's legs in that, and I think yeah, it agreed. Be, it would be really it would be really cool to see it. My next my next one we we've we've talked about. Um, doubles to a degree, but uh, the future of doubles in the tennis world, what where, where, where does the future lie?
1: I hope that the likes of, yeah, the United Cup, Olympics, you know, might give it the exposure that it needs to maintain its place in, yeah, in the tennis tour because it is important and very entertaining and it'd be a real shame if, if it you know kind of downgrades as it were, so I hope that it's gonna keep pushing on and there's gonna be more opportunities for doubles players
0: um quick fire round the 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 traditional quick fire round at control the controllables are you ready I'm ready singles or doubles doubles serve <laughs> or return return forehand or backhand forehand your favorite tournament?
1: Wimbledon's the obvious one, but non-obvious one, Charleston.
0: Oh, a few people have said that actually. I haven't been there, but I I need to get it on the list. Medi- <laughs> medical time out or not?
1: Not. Strongly.
0: No. <laughs> Rafa or Roger? Roger. Serena or Venus? Serena. The best of three or sudden death games and a match tiebreak? Best of three. What's one rule change you would have in tennis?
1: That the entry list for Grand Slams for doubles is done on doubles ranking. You can't get in on your singles ranking. Or at least there's some kind of rule where you have to have played eight doubles tournaments a year. You can't just rock up for the slams on your singles ranking.
0: I like it and I agree. What does control the controllables mean to you?
1: I guess recognising that not everything is in your control, but the things you can control, you do control and you don't worry about the rest.
0: And who should our next guest be on control the controllables?
1: I think someone that would have a really interesting story. I don't know if you've had them on already. Is Billy Harris? Have you had Billy Harris on?
0: No, I and, and I have to actually stop uh, before I answer that. I've literally just had a message come through, and I'm I'm gonna share it because I've just seen that we have been voted as the best tennis podcast in 2024. It's literally just no come in front of me. So that's I incredible!
1: Have- Congratulations. <laughs>
0: For the third year, I literally can't believe that. I thought we, there's no way that we can win this year. So, wow. So, a thank you to everybody. Anyone who's listening, that is unbelievable. Um, amazing. Sorry, that's completely, that distracted me. Um, But I, I had to share. Billy, I absolutely want on. So, I coached Billy for a while. Billy was out at Sopper Tennis Academy. I think Billy's mm-hmm. story is incredible. Um I have been in touch with Billy and it was back in October, November time and he he, he replied to me, Dan, I don't really have a story yet. Um, what? Yeah, and he does have a story. He's got an incredible story, but he was of the mindset, I think, at the time where he wanted to qualify um, for Australian Open. He wanted to get the ranking. I don't think he wanted mm-hmm. to be distracted. I, underst- I understood that completely. Um, yeah. So, He's someone that I definitely want to revisit because I think it's a really important story. And anyone who doesn't know Billy Harris basically travelled the whole of Europe in a in a camper van for, for many years and has done tennis the absolute hard way and he's, he's got himself into the top 200 in the world. It's a, it's a really motivational, inspirational story. So if you can persuade him, then the baton is passed. If you can't persuade him, you need to give me a reserve name just in case.
1: Um, I think Maya Lumsden had a has a very good story as well. She, she had long COVID and managed to come back from that, and then obviously made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon last year. Yeah, she's she's a great girl. I don't know how keen she'd be to come on and speak on a podcast, but I could try and persuade her. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we'll see
0: two two great suggestions and and Olivia a big big thank you for for you coming on it's great to hear your story and uh, it's it's only halfway through you know that i i have no doubt like i told you on that balcony at bath all those years ago the future is absolutely bright for you i i i know it. there's if there's one thing i know i know the doubles game and i know a, a proper doubles player when i see it you know and it just you know you keep getting your head down you keep doing your thing and there's there's lots more. You gave me four stories on this podcast. <laughs> you sneak a fourth one in. You know yep. like you're only supposed to have one, but that's <laughs> fine. But I, you're the next time I have you on, I want four fresh stories, and I have okay. no doubt that those stories will be will be exciting to tell. So all, all the very best over the next few weeks in the show, and hopefully I will see you out there somewhere along the line as well.
1: Thanks so much, Dan.
0: So there you have it another great story coming to us here at control the controllables and my big takeaway look anything is possible guys anything is possible as long as you stay the course and I talk about that with players whether that's in a match you know the beauty of a tennis match is you could be 6-1-4-1 down if that was a, a football match if that was a rugby match a basketball match a hockey match you would be done right you'd be 7 nil down, 8 1 down, basketball 100 to 60 down with five minutes to go. The match is done. It's not physically possible to get back in. Now, if you're being beat up on the tennis court, you have good, a good 10 minutes at any point you are back in the match. And that's what I always, always love about our sport and our scoring system. And Olivia's story is similar. You know, you go back to her being 16, 17, 18 years old. She was six one four one down. She wasn't going to be a tennis player, but she stayed the course. She stayed humble. She kept working, and then opportunities start to open. And you never quite know when you start to mature a little bit more. You never quite know when you get the bug even more and get even more inspired to do things the right way. And I just love hearing from Olivia and how she's doing that and how she's done that. And now she's in the big leagues and she's playing on the big stages. And as I said at the start of the show, I, I really believe in Olivia. I really do. I think she's got a fantastic future ahead. And if you get a chance to to watch her play, the her ability, and, and she plays doubles the right way, you know, what we used to know as doubles, coming to the net, looking to knock the ball off, you know, she really is a, a, a fantastic player to watch. And I wish her all the very best as she continues to rise up the rankings. But my final thing, I said it at the start and I'm going to end with it. I have to because I am so excited maybe a bit nervous, you know, to stand in front of you all and and bring our controller controllables to you in person. It feels like now's the time. This is the right step for us to take. And I just can't wait to, to meet you all. Can't wait to, to show you what we have planned and really we... We do have some amazing panellists. There's lots of conversations going on right now. But John Morris, who has been a guest on the podcast. John Morris was the agent to Nick Kyrgios and is the current agent to Andre Rublev, to Lina Splitalina, to Daria Kazakina, to Borna chorich And he is working very closely in, and understands the ins and outs of where tennis is going next. We are in touch with Craig Tiley about being part of the show. Let's see. Let's see if we can get Craig, who is the big person behind this next move of, of the, the Grand Slams coming together for the next phase of tennis. And we're in talks with players, coaches, and I can guarantee you it's going to be an amazing discussion. And on top of that, we're going to have a lot of fun on the night. And I really hope that you can join us wherever you are in the world. You know, this up-to-date Technology that now is going to be able to stream that into your homes and make it interactive. I just, yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how, how, how happy I am that we are doing this. Like I say, all the details are in the show notes. And if you're not following us yet on social media, come on! I have a CTC podcast on various platforms, or oh, Soto Tennis. You'll also find us as well, and we're going to be sharing all that information. And I want to say a big thank you to you all for your continued support as we're moving through 2024. It's all exciting. I go off to Indian Wells to Palm Springs next week. So what do you want to hear from me from there? Who do you want me to try and speak to whilst I'm out there? So many more things that we can do and so much more we can bring to you. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the
1: Controllables.